0: Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte.
1: Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this episode where we are continuing our sporadic series called Essays on Carrie. This is part three, where we are going to be talking about the essay, Harvesting the Celebrity Interface, Carrie Fisher, Virtual Performance and Software Stars by Andrew Kemp Wilcox, which is featured in the anthology that we've been going through, Our Blessed Rebel Queen.
0: Very excited to be continuing this series. This has been one of my most favorite things we've ever done on the podcast and hopefully you've listened to our other two episodes on who owns Carrie Fisher and gatekeeping the past two essays that sent me into like a personal spiral <laughs> of uh of like my own identity and my the way that I perceive fandom and perceive Carrie Fisher and my past and everything I, Caitlin Toe, it's not just me it's been really a fun way to approach these topics about fandom and participatory fandom and participatory culture which is something that we talk about in those other episodes which I'm sure we're probably going to be talking about in this one as well this this essay is a little different than the others and I'm really looking forward to getting into it but on the series we are just continuously Analyzing our relationship with Carrie Fisher, our relationship with Princess Leia, and how we've been consumers of her image and persona—it's—it's it's been a really interesting journey. So, thank you for listening and for listening to the other ones. I know so many of you have purchased this book. I think we sold it out on Amazon, <laughs> so that was cool. And I really—I don't know—it's cool to always read these essays on fandom. I actually purchased another book that was recommended by a friend. Um, called Fake Geek Girls, which I'm really excited to dive into. But this one, I feel like we uh, have a lot. We have a lot more essays to get through, actually, for this series. So this will definitely be an ongoing series. So again, thank you for listening, and thank you for joining us today.
1: We said when we first started this series that it would probably we continue it throughout the year, probably, but. Now I'm not so sure if we'll make it through the end of the book by the end of the year.
0: <laughs> Just with the amount of Star Wars that has come out, I and know. it is coming out, I, I'm i so nervous about the end of this year. So.
1: <laughs> I think like we say that every year, actually.
0: <laughs> yeah, but this one's a little different. It it's a little different. Okay. <laughs> anyway.
1: Yeah. These essays, I think it's funny, too, how you are talking about these essays being fun, but also sending us into a spiral about our relationship with Carrie Fisher, with fandom, with ourselves and all of it. And like the industry of a franchise and fandom. And yeah, it's been fascinating. This essay in particular, I feel like I read it pretty late at night, honestly. And It kind of made me question my entire like online persona, (laughs) like how I perceive celebrities and Mm -hmm. the pros and cons of like this thing that we do, uh, which I don't know. I feel like so this essay is called Harvesting the Celebrity Interface. And we'll kind of talk more about what that means, because I think the title of this one is particularly evocative of I don't know, Mm -hmm. it feels very sci-fi. Harvesting the celebrity interface. And I don't think I really. What I expected this essay to go through was talking about virtual performance, which is in the title of it, and the ethics of virtual performance. And of course, we're coming fresh out of a period of Star Wars where it feels like everyone was talking about this, specifically in regards to Luke Skywalker in uh, the book of Boba Fett and the Mandalorian and everything like that. And this essay. Doesn't really get into that uh, specifically. Instead, it kind of takes a different route that I wasn't quite expecting, and yeah, it surprised me. And I feel like this essay, maybe even more so than the other two that we've read so far, I just like want to sit down at this mic and like read it to you straight. So you can just hear it yeah. <laughs> as it exists, because I think it goes through a lot of interesting things about the the celebrity image, the, the product of the celebrity, which sounds, um, we don't like saying that, even though we all know it, you know what I mean? It's it's weird. It's weird.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't like saying it, but we have spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about commodification, mm-hmm. marketing, merchandising, and all of that that is built into Star Wars, the celebrity in itself, right? Yeah. And I think that we we haven't really defined yet what this essay is about purely, but... I I will I just want to say we have spent a lot of time thinking about this and wondering the relationship between merchandising and the brand Star Wars and this is um I, this essay I think moves away from the merchandising and then talks about storytelling through uh like a digital performance which is really interesting.
1: Yeah, I think at its core this essay talks about the creation of the perception of a celebrity and who is in charge of that, of creating that perception? So is it the studio, somewhat, like talking about Carrie Fisher, is it Lucasfilm? Is it Carrie Fisher herself? Or is it the fan? And how all of us are creating an image of a person, in this case, Carrie Fisher, and what all of these different entities, the stakes that all of these different entities have in creating this perception of who Carrie Fisher is. Okay. So to give kind of a brief overview of this essay, and we've talked about this on the past episodes covering this anthology, but this, for as many of you that have bought this book, and I think it is an excellent purchase, um, I feel like it's kind of, it's been a learning process for Charlotte and I and how to talk about these essays because they don't feel as accessible as some of the other resources that we're often using on the show, you know, thinking of like the archive books or the um, art of books. It seems like a lot of those excerpts and stuff are kind of always floating around the internet. So if you don't have them, they're kind of easy to, to to find or to get more information about. But this one always feels, this anthology, Our Blessed Rebel Queen, feels a little less accessible in that regard. And so, I don't know. I think the last episode we tried at the beginning of the show to do kind of a brief overview of what the essay covers and then kind of dive in more of the details So give you like a summary of it. So hopefully that's helpful. If you guys have other ideas or anything like that on how to better convey what we're talking about through this essay or through any of these essays, please let us know. We'd love to hear your thoughts and your ideas about it. So from the author, this is kind of a summary of what this essay goes through. The first half of the essay will survey the brief history of virtual performance, its past applications, and the studio investment in its future as a tool of studio control. The second half will focus on Fisher and her relationship, facilitated and mediated by software applications, with her fans and industry-created images. In this section, I will examine the intersection between Richard Dyer's traditional theories of stardom and two variants of what I call software celebrity which is the virtual performance technology as deployed in Rogue One and the reconfiguration of stardom and celebrity made possible by interaction with software applications like social media. The goal is to explore software celebrity as a new kind of virtual interface, one negotiated by both Carrie Fisher and her fans, which has refashioned her celebrity image in a manner that has made her image difficult, if not impossible, to reconcile with studio control. This chapter is not concerned with what the future will hold for virtual performances or for Fisher's digital double. So that's kind of a brief summary of what the author goes through in this essay. So in part one, he goes through the history of virtual performance, uh, kind of all the steps that have led us even to a place where we do have something like Luke Skywalker in the book of Boba Fett. But then after that, he starts talking about what he calls the celebrity software, which, again, this essay feels so sci-fi and a lot of the verbiage and lingo that it uses. Celebrity software, interface, interpretation, like all of this feels very, very digital, which I suppose it's supposed to. But in that section, uh, the author really goes through uh, the ways in which An industry creates a perception of a celebrity and the ways that the fans have harvested um, what they call signifiers of a celebrity in order to create a version of a celebrity that is put out there on, in our case, the Internet.
0: So this essay really does explore the relationship that we, the consumer, has with the celebrity of Carrie Fisher, which is something we've talked about already, basically, but then also how... That interacts with the like the digital perception, what it means to be a star, the stardom of it all, the celebrity. It's it's really fascinating. And I have to say that something you didn't mention, Caitlin, is that this essay doesn't go into the Rise of Skywalker at all. I would say I think this essay was written probably at the end of 2019. So it doesn't talk about uh, like the deep fake technology or anything like that. It does reference Rogue One, but it doesn't really go into the rise of skywalker and carrie's uh performance in that movie which i think could be talked about and we'll probably touch on that as well in fact it doesn't It so much doesn't talk about that because of the time period the, the essay actually begins referencing something that i actually forgot about and maybe this is a good place to start caitlin in that it references how Lucasfilm at the, the beginning of 2017, so really shortly after Carrie Fisher died, they, uh, Lucasfilm put out a statement. And I'm just going to read the statement. So the statement was in January 13th, 2017. A post on StarWars.com titled, A Statement Regarding New Rumors. The studio explained, We don't normally respond to fan or press speculation, but there's a rumor circulating that we would like to address. We want to assure our fans that Lucasfilm has no plans to digitally recreate Carrie Fisher's performance as Princess or General Leia Organa. Carrie Fisher was, is, and always will be part of the Lucasfilm family. She was our princess, our general, and more importantly, our friend. We are still hurting from her loss. We cherish her memory and legacy as Princess Leia and will always strive to honor everything she gave to Star Wars. That ends the excerpt from StarWars.com. And uh, the author, Kemp Wilcox, goes on to describe this statement. He says, the statement was surprising for two reasons. The first is the unusual decision by a corporate studio to interfere in fan discussion about an early ongoing creative process for a film, Episode 9, three years before its intended release. The second is on the same day Lucasfilm asserted their firm opposition to digitally recreating Fisher as Leia, a Star Wars fan could visit a movie theater anywhere in the world and watch the studio do exactly that. Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, was released in North America on December 10, 2016, featuring a rousing final moment in which plans for the original Death Star superweapon are handed off to Princess Leia, digitally recreated to depict Fisher in her appearance from the opening moments of the 1977 film, stitching the newest Star Wars film directly to the original via digital trickery. The Lucasfilm statement dismissing the rumors doesn't explicitly take a position on the digital recreation process or its role in the studio's films, but nevertheless, Nevertheless, it implies an unseemly element in the technology an element that would not be appropriate for a member of the quote lucasfilm family or their their chosen term for fisher a friend end quote okay i find all of this really 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 interesting what's super interesting about this statement is number one how soon lucasfilm put out this statement i actually remember being um, when it came out and feeling soothed by it. But then also, I think this essay begs the question about how they're pretty vague about it, yet it really does imply this uh, weirdness about the concept of digital recreation, which is something that they're doing today. But how do you sort of wrestle with that as a fan when you have this implied understanding of who Carrie Fisher is, when really we don't know who Carrie Fisher is? The essay goes on to talk about how, quote, after decades of studio investment in virtual performance technology, Fisher's passing exposed a gap between the capitalist interest in the technology and the ethical in- issues underlying it. Why did the recreation of Fisher provoke this reaction and not say Cushing's? One explanation is that Fisher's sudden passing sparked a, quote, too soon reaction from the public. But this seems inadequate and only raises more questions. The phrase, quote, too soon is most often applied to jokes made at the expense of the deceased, an act perceived as disrespectful. Are virtual recreations inherently disrespectful to the dead? Do they mock? If so, why tolerate them at all for any performer? How is a virtual performer any different from the typical flood of celebrity images that follows in popular media after death? One might argue that posthumous depictions of Fisher are acceptable only in so far as they are respectful, but we are left once again to question what about virtual performances that fail to meet that criteria? Complicating the issue further is the simple fact that reanimated de- reanimating deceased celebrities was not only the first, but likely to date the most common application of the technology. But the very notion of of resurrecting Fisher via digital technology was met with enough concern that Lucasfilm had to issue their strong rejection. And so then the essay goes on to talk about the concept of quote, fan rejection of virtual virtual Carrie Fisher. And I just like, it's interesting that we start the essay talking about how this was a statement issued in the time of like pre-production for episode nine, when actually we did get a sort of quasi-digital performance as you can, might be able to define it by Carrie Fisher in episode 9 anyway. So initially within the marketing that had, hadn't really started at all for episode 9, we get a post on starwars.com that talks about how they are not going to do this and they would never disrespect a member of the quote Lucasfilm family. And then later we do get a somewhat of a you know, digitally stitched, software enhanced, Carrie Fisher performance. Yes, the the scenes that we saw in The Rise of Skywalker were uh, filmed for The Force Awakens and stitched together to make uh, make it make sense for The Rise of Skywalker. And um, one thing that Caitlin referred to a couple minutes ago was this concept of software celebrity, and I think all of that. Really does come into play with episode nine and with the way that we interact with Star Wars today. And all these questions about, like, is it too soon? Is virtual performance mocking? Is it honoring? Where is the line? Um, and wh- what is that line in the first place? How did we get to this line when we are a consumer and we are interacting with the concept of celebrity and stardom?
1: The part that Charlotte's been reading from has kind of been like the front section of this essay, really before they. Uh, even get into the meat of what they're going to be analyzing and talking about. And like a lot of these essays so far, it's really kind of taken me back pretty viscerally to whatever time period that they're describing. And it's usually like within the sequel trilogy era uh, that kind of these memories have come back. And I think this, we've talked about it before in the past episodes, but just this kind of All of these things happening at once at the end of 2016 and 2017 with Carrie Fisher's passing, the premiere of Rogue One. Um, What's also happening is they're in post-production for The Last Jedi. And there was all of these conversations about if they were going to change what was going on in The Last Jedi to... Account for Carrie Fisher's passing if it was going to have if they were going to make changes that could then ripple into episode nine And I remember ryan johnson being very adamant that he what there were going to be no changes uh, To princess leia's performance to her storyline in the last jedi and I remember all of the conversations all of us were having at that time of saying there is no right answer I think that's what all of us were saying At that time, I remember talking about it at Celebration, talking about it at Dragon Con online on the podcast, other people talking about it. And I think the one thing we all came back to was that there is no right answer. I think a lot of people, myself included, in looking at the range of possibilities, it was like, I don't think a a virtual performance as we were kind of imagining it, like Peter Cushing's, for example, was what we wanted in The Rise of Skywalker in episode nine, for example. But I think what this section is kind of getting at is, okay, if that is, quote unquote, disrespectful, is Peter Cushing's respectful because his family agreed to it? It's been a number of years since he died. Like they said, it's, you know, it's not weeks ago that this happened? Like, what is the line? What what does it mean to be respectful of a digital performance like Peter Cushing's versus if they had done the same thing with Leia in The Rise of Skywalker um, that they did with Peter Cushing, for example, uh, with Tarkin in Rogue One? And furthermore, to your point, Charlotte, it's like, okay, so Carrie Fisher's performance was Digitally stitched from the Force Awakened. So that technically is virtual performance. Does that cross the line? Does it not? Does it? Right? Like if we're drawing lines in the sands, how do we know where to draw them? And I think that's been a really interesting thing to think about. I can't say that this essay comes to any sort of set conclusion. About it. In fact, I would argue it doesn't really continue to talk about this issue um, mm-hmm. specifically Agreed. throughout the Agreed. rest of the essay. I think it just uses it as kind of a starting point to get you thinking about what are my thoughts about virtual performance. What is a virtual performance technically? Because you know, Lucasfilm had that statement put out where you know they say we're we're never going to do that. She's part of the Lucasfilm family, but then technically they do do that in the Rise of Skywalker, but. Is it the same? Is it different? Is it ethically good, ethically bad, what they did in The Rise of Skywalker? I think all of us agree that it wasn't. Um, That they did what they felt they could do with what they had. And they didn't want to write a story that Leia wasn't in, in The Rise of Skywalker. So this was the best they could do. And I don't mean that to sound bad because... Again, what we were all talking about for years is it's a question no one wants to have to ask and there is no right answer. And the only thing we all know is that it absolutely sucks that she's not here anymore. And that's kind of where we all came down on it. And I think a lot of us do at the time. We're like, you know, what they decide if it's done in relationship with Carrie's family that's really the most important thing at this point.
0: Yeah, I think what makes uh, talking about Carrie Fisher in relationship to digital performance or the quote unquote software celebrity that is presented here in this essay, which I honestly like objectively love that term. I think it's really helpful and we'll probably be talking about it a lot. I think what's really interesting is that Carrie Fisher herself as fans, we are able to consume so much of her, written media, her books, um, her tweets, her social media presence, her interviews, which are all composites of what is defined in this essay as part of her software celebrity, her stardom, her, her how, how we fans perceive her. Um, and what's interesting is that Carrie herself has spoken a lot about her own autonomy or lack thereof of her own celebrity as it relates to Star Wars. And... I, I don't know. I think it's really interesting. Like, we, when you insert Carrie into this conversation about digital performance, it gets uh, more complicated just because we have someone who has talked so much about being taken advantage of for her image um, throughout the entire series. And, and we then sort of ask ourselves as fans, like, how much are, are we guilty of participating in that sort of um, consumerist culture as well? something that's so interesting is that we as fans, at least I'm just speaking for myself and Caitlin as well, are pretty aware that when you join Star Wars, they take like a 360 degree digital mold or like regular mold of your face to be used for toys. And the understanding is that, yeah, it's used for toys, but it's also used for a lot of different things now into the future. And the essay kind of explores the what happens in the future with that sort of um, technology, and like, why was it in its place in the like why why was it so um, it's so well used within Star Wars, and it, it, it Carrie sort of was always publicly talked about it. You know, in the quote in the essay says, "quote." Decades after Fisher signed away her famous face for free, digital recreation broke that face down into its component data and displaced both the face and potentially the star significations. This obviously the same thing happened to Peter Cushing, which is why they were able to create that sort of technology that makes his face look so well done in Rogue One that many people who watch that movie don't even recognize that it's a digital performance, right? That honestly, a lot of that, and I could be wrong about this, but this is my understanding, that a lot of that came from sort of uh projection mapping and like the creation of toys back in the 70s when his character first debuted and same with carrie and i i think that disney lucasfilm they own your image and that's something carrie has joked about so much something we've talked about on this podcast and so the the conversation about consuming these digital performances and how where they are started from and where they are created from is pretty fascinating. I also want to acknowledge my probably like lack of understanding about a lot of this technology. I am not someone who works in the digital, in at least in that sort of digital space, um, and in, especially in special effects. And my scope in uh, understanding of it is is limited to the things I consume. And I uh, I just want to acknowledge that because I think as we talk about the digital performance, there is a sense of limitation over my own knowledge of how something like that works. But um, at the same time, I do think that my, perhaps my perspective, that my limited scope of perspective is useful in this topic as we are like sort of general consumers of digital performances sort of every single day these days. Regardless, I think that Carrie becomes an interesting pivot i guess in order to explore the concept of what uh this author calls celebrity interface which like caitlin said is very a very sci-fi terminology but because we have so much information about what she thought about her own um, relationship to her character princess leia and how they're sort of indistinguishable um, it creates an interesting uh, thought process i guess
1: yeah i think that this essay uses a lot of this Uh, Like I said earlier, like very evocative, descriptive language in in a sci-fi sense, things like celebrity interface and like harvesting celebrity signifiers and things like that. It's very technical. It's very um, inorganic. But then it's intersecting with someone like Carrie Fisher, who has benefited and suffered and hated and loved this conflation of her own identity and image with princess leia herself and not only that but it's also intersecting with the fandom with fans who feel that they have a very personal relationship with carrie fisher um in a way that i don't think was the same for harrison ford or mark hamill um or even george lucas to a certain degree carrie has always kind of stood Separate for better and for worse in so many ways when it came to the fan relationship to relationship with the fans. Totally So the first kind of big section of this essay gives a history of virtual performance and the author provides kind of a short definition of What they mean when they're talking about virtual performance because it's not just something like deep fake or what we saw with rogue one Quote, briefly sketched, virtual performance refers to the use of software applications and digital effects to create a new simulated performance of an actor or celebrity personality, often recreated without the presence or input from the target performer.
0: What I actually found really interesting about this section of this essay is that... Uh, Yes, we define virtual performances and I think that it's a helpful definition in this conversation to say without the input from the targeted performer, because I think that you can spin off digital performance to even talk about like animation or something. But I think that what this essay actually does is it credits the exploration of this technology into uh, something we know super well, which is the Phantom Menace for its creation of original virtual characters. we we talk about that with Jar Jar Binks as the first like individual virtual character ever on screen, and that how that process um, was so complicated to get there. But if you can actually take that way further back, and I think this is something that's a limitation for myself, in that when I when I think about digital performances and the the concept of it, the politics behind it, the conversation that's happening now, my mind immediately goes to deepfake and basically everything that's been happening in the past five years. And that's not really fair. And I think because the this essay actually goes into a lot of different movies and television shows that used... Uh, archival footage and uh, different forms of different types of digital performances to, uh, to get their story across. And it really sort of jogged my memory. And I'm just going to go through some of the, the noted examples. Zelig in 1983, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid in 1982, Back to the Future Part 2 1989. In fact, it even refers to a lawsuit, quote, which so egregiously used makeup and trick photography to fake the presence of actor Crispin Glover that the result was a lawsuit. I didn't know that. That was in 1989. And then Forrest Gump in 1999 with the inclusion of LBJ and John Lennon, Forrest Gump like really leans on digital performance and and sort of like inserting Forrest Gump into different historical um, pieces. I don't know. I feel like of all this list, that's the one I've watched the most because it's literally always on TV. And I remember when I was growing up and I would watch it, uh, my family would always be like, isn't it so crazy that they did that they just they just put him in that scene or they put the president in the scene and it just looks so good and it creates a little bit of a magic, right? And I it gets it across in a movie like Forrest Gump. And then to continue, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow in 2001 that brought back and used a digital performance of uh, Laurence Olivier and then this was also They also reference in this essay a lot of commercials that use digital performance to bring back certain characters. I think that off the top of our head, characters and actors, of course, quote, instead of plastic, instead of a plastic, awkward model of Humphrey Bogart, the actor's real likeness could be seen composited alongside Elton John, James Cagney and Louis Armstrong to sell Diet Coke in 1991. John Wayne likewise sold Coors Light alongside R. Lee Ermey the following year, and Fred Astaire ditched Ginger Rogers for a Dirt Devil vacuum in an infamous 1997 spot. I think that we can all kind of remember a little bit of these. The one that stands out in my head is that John Wayne one. I remember that specifically. I feel like that was shown a lot, actually. Yeah, that's
1: the one I remember.
0: Yeah, and... All this to say, I just think that this essay really highlighted, like, wow, they've been really exploring this technology for a really long time. And then, of course, like I mentioned before, the essay kind of goes on to say that technology was in place. And all of this is, of course, alongside of digital characters being explored, especially in um, Jurassic Park. That first time um, with ILM in 1993 is when that movie came out. So I think they were doing that in 1992. So we've been on this train for a long time. And... Uh, When we use the term deepfake, that's different, but also very similar to the way that things have been going for a long time in terms of posthumous performances, right? And also it references a couple of other posthumous performances that were digitally altered to some degree after the actor's death to continue their performances and their arcs in Gladiator, Oliver Reed, um, Paul Walker in Furious 7, that's in 2015, and Nancy Merchant, merchant in Sopranos in 2001. So it's not like like Carrie Fisher's performance in the Rise of Skywalker was the first time anyone in Hollywood had ever been faced with that conundrum and I I just think that's worth acknowledging. Again, cuz I feel like I look back at the past like 10 years, 5 years of technology and I'm like how did we get here so fast and wow, there's so many ethical questions that we haven't answered and the truth is like these questions have been asked for a long time. And uh, again, I think that this essay is more interested in understanding why uh, there's a line between what's okay and what's not, and how do we get to that point based off of our own relationship with celebrity.
1: Yeah. And is something like a commercial, like John Wayne in a commercial, is that less ethical than, say, if they had completely digitally recreated Carrie Fisher and the Rise of Skywalker? Like is selling mm. a product like beer on a commercial? is that less ethical than continuing a story like Princess Leia that Carrie Fisher did, Loved. did love, right? Like, is that where we're drawing yeah. the line or is it all or nothing? Which is,
0: it's so crazy because personally, like from that sentence alone, like objectively, I would say John Wayne selling a product when he is not alive and as a character that he is not playing <laughs> yeah, uh, is, um, not okay like that's I would draw the line there if I were his family right and but that's not the case yeah (laughs) so uh and also it's worth noting that there's been a lot of talk about how Billy Lord Carrie Fisher's daughter did approve her likeness um being used in The Rise of Skywalker at least and I also just want to say like one sentence in that I think it's interesting that now we've entered this time that we're just coming off of watching Obi-Wan Kenobi, which included a 10-year-old Princess Leia, obviously recast. It was an amazing choice. I think that a lot of us can agree. I'm not going to speak for everyone, but I think that a lot of us, maybe 99 percent of us can agree that that was a great addition to the series. And she was amazing and we love her and everything, but it is the first time we've ever seen a live action recasting of Princess Leia. And I think that that conversation can go alongside of this one, sort of, because I remember so deeply when everyone and still everyone is talking about this, I guess, to some degree about how perhaps Carrie should be or Princess Leia should be recast for episode nine to make the story more complete, uh, to not just build off of things that were filmed back in 2014.
1: And left on the cutting room floor.
0: Right. And building a story around that versus having something that, like telling the story that they meant to tell, that they told Carrie Fisher they would tell way back when, when she was still alive. And I think that everything I just said comes off the side that I do think that perhaps they should have recast Princess Leia for episode nine. And of course, I can say that after the fact, because I think that before episode nine, I was like, I actually think that they seem confident in what they have. I don't know what they have because, of course, we only know what we know, right? I was like, I don't know. I, I still never really know where I fall. I think that it could flip-flop every day. But definitely before Episode nine, I was pretty confident in, in Lucasfilm's ability to pull it off. And I do think that they did pull it off and to a certain extent and because they were really confident with how that footage looked. Yeah, I just think that it's worth noting that we do have now. A recast Princess Leia in live action, which is the first time that's ever happened. And how does that change our relationship with Leia? Does it extend it? Does it deepen it? Does it deepen our relationship with Carrie? Because I think it's yes to all of those questions.
1: Does it deepen your relationship to Carrie Fisher? Or to um, I think Leia? so, because I think that we,
0: yeah, to Princess Leia, and because I think that we've spent a fair amount of time, Caitlin, you and I, talking about how I think Carrie would have loved. Vivian Lyra Blair's performance of Leia. Okay,
1: but how does that deepen your relationship with Carrie Fisher herself?
0: It doesn't, I guess, not personally, but I think that it makes me think about her legacy in another way that I hadn't before because I hadn't had this experience before.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I think that I think it's fascinating to look at Lucasfilm as a studio where you can put something like this three-person performance of Luke Skywalker in the Book of Boba Fett right next to the recasting of Princess Leia in Obi-Wan Kenobi and kind of look at why did we choose to do what we did here? What are the ethics of what we were doing in the Book of Boba Fett? And I mean, I've been the first to say that I thought that it was fascinating what they did with Luke Skywalker in the Book of Boba Fett, that I, I thought it was a good performance. Um, even seeing some of the behind the scenes features of it being Mark's performance and also the actor Graham too that that made me feel quote unquote that it was ethically better. Maybe that is ethically better because Mark was of course very involved in this digital performance. But then I've also been the person to say I don't think I'd want like a whole Luke Skywalker TV show, for example, with that virtual, performance. I I would want that actor Graham to do it because I thought he was great and he looks just like Mark Hamill when he was, you know, in the original trilogy era. So is that yeah. hypocritical of me? I don't know. Maybe it is.
0: No, it's just a new world. It's a new world that we'd like never had to ask these questions But then before. what we've been
1: talking <laughs> about is, okay, people have been asking these questions versions of digital performances that are commiserate with the technology that was available at the time have been around since the 70s and 80s that they've been doing these things it's been around have people been asking the questions have they been choosing to ignore the ethical implications or is it just because something like deep fake has taken off has gone so far in so short amount of time that suddenly it's like, okay, wait a second. This um, <laughs> this kind of went off <laughs> very quickly, faster than I would have expected. All right, now we have to <laughs> really talk about what's going on here. I did want to include just kind of one um, legal thing, I guess, that they included in this book that I thought was interesting. So They're talking about Fred Astaire. And a commercial that Fred Astaire did with a vacuum. And the author writes, Although the use of Astaire's likeness had been approved by Astaire's daughter, the star's widow objected. The California Senate eventually passed the so-called Astaire Bill in 1999 to provide families more rights to deceased celebrity likenesses or more accurately, limit the avenues along which studios could claim fair use. And I imagine, like... I can't imagine what those kind of contracts look like now because obviously a studio like Lucasfilm is going to want to have as much use spelled out in a contract from day 1 that they bring on a new actress or actor or something like that. And even with Carrie Fisher, her, you know, she's 19 years old and she didn't know, I think this this essay says it, she didn't know what her face was worth. <laughs> and it's crazy to think about like what like Daisy Ridley's contract looked like, for example, because she was 19 years old or close to it when she first mm-hmm. came into the Star Wars franchise. It's a lot to think about. And I think this essay has really made me think through my feelings on virtual performances that come from a studio like Lucasfilm. I can't say that I'm still 100% against it, But I think it's made me think about it a lot more critically. And I can't even say that I still think it's ethically wrong to a certain extent. Um, Maybe that will change in the future. But I also think it's very nebulous. Like even with Mark Hamill and Luke Skywalker, he's so involved. Like clearly he's good with it. Or or is he actually? Mm -hmm. And he just feels like he's they're going to do it anyway. So he might as well be involved in it. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I know that seeing him so involved in the book of Boba Fett made me feel, quote-unquote, better about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that the book actually touches upon what we do know about what Carrie thought about the Rogue One edition of her character of Leia at the very end. The, the essay talks about how Prince specifically was on the record for before his death about his distaste, distaste for virtual performances And said, um, this is what he said. I'm just going to read it because I actually think it's helpful. That's the most demonic thing imaginable. Everything is as it is. And it should be. If I was meant to jam with Duke Ellington, we would have lived in the same age. That whole virtual reality thing, it really is demonic and I am not a demon. Also, what they did with that Beatles song Free as a Bird, manipulating John Legend's voice to have him singing from across the grave, that'll never happen to me. To prevent that kind of thing from happening is another reason why I want artistic control. So the topic of artistic control is I think what you're getting at too, Caitlin. So again, the essay sort of goes into what do we know about... Carrie Fisher and what she thought about the Rogue One situation, how involved she was. Again, there's not a lot on the record about that. Quote, Lucasfilm executive John Knoll claimed to have received word that Fisher, quote, loved her digital recreation. Just a few days before her death, however, Fisher posted a link on her Twitter account to an article from The Independent on Rogue One. The article titled, Rogue One's CGI Princess Leia. The sands of time are so cruel you can't even do motion capture for your younger self. Briefly describes the difficulties that arise when older actors attempt to recreate their younger selves via motion capture, pinning the blame on, on an older actor's body language. Fisher accompanied her tweet of the article with a comment composed in her style, of course, heavily in emojis that translates to the sands of time. So cruel, they should be arrested and sent to a cardiac beach. Get CGI perspective and deal with it. End quote. Her comments suggest, at the least, ambivalence over the digital future of performance. Although, without further commentary or more direct quotes, we can only hazard a guess. So, there you go. We actually have no idea what Carrie thought about her <laughs> Rogue One performance beyond John Knoll's word, which I guess I sort of trust. <laughs> I trust John Knoll, yeah. but. Uh,
1: Someone who's still working for Lucas Lucasfilm?
0: Yeah. I don't know. Right? It's I, I, like. It's, it's an- um, I guess I'd, I'd love to know more, but we don't have that sort of information. And I do remember her posting a lot about Rogue One um, when it came out. And that was what was actually, uh, if I could bring myself back to those days where those like three days basically on online as we were perceiving her image online as uh, what we were going through the news that uh, Carrie could potentially die and. Um, and before then she had been tweeting about rogue one sort of clandestinely because of course like her en- in the ending that was a spoiler so she wasn't necessarily being like hey did you see me yeah i was in there love that because it, you know she died on i think the 27th, 27th the 27th and uh yeah so i think that that december 27th movie came out like possibly a week or more before then so there wasn't a lot of conversation about that digital performance at all, really, um, from her. So, of course, we don't have that much. There's only a finite amount of time that we would.
1: Any interviews she would have given talking about it that we, I think, would expect to expect to have come would have been in the new year.
0: Monthly, yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. And so I guess when we talk about our relationship to the Luke Skywalker, quote-unquote, fake, right, that sort of technology that we see explored in the recent television shows, we do feel good about it because if if you feel good about it at all, a lot of that has to do with the fact that Mark was on set, that Mark uh has some input, that we like Graham's performance, that it was all done with love. Like we get the sense, at least the perception of love, right? I would assume that this a similar thing would happen with Carrie, but I I don't I don't know. So it's weird to not know, I guess. It kind of
1: makes you wonder if everything that happened with Carrie Fisher and with Leia and at the end of Rogue One and kind of the whole process that they went through and the fact that she did pass away so shortly after that film premiered, if that informed how they handled handled the situation with Luke Skywalker and Book of Boba Fett is kind of the wrong way to put it. But if it made Lucasfilm kind of put down like pen to paper procedures for how they're going to move forward with something like luke in book of boba fett like the steps they want to go through like making sure it's cleared with mark hamill having that in writing okay inviting him on set being a part of the performance as much as he wants to be everything like that because mark did the full performance more or less for luke and i think like then graham mimicked it after mark performed it or some combination it's a little unclear yeah some combination of that but i wonder if it changed how Lucasfilm felt that they should ethically go about a virtual performance. And what we see in book of Boba Fett is what they think is ethically the right path forward with something like Luke Skywalker.
0: And maybe that's good. Like the, they should be answering those questions and asking those questions because we, the audience, are as well. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, how can we, the audience, sort of, in our own perception of the media that they're putting out, like, feel ethically good about what story they're putting in front of us, right? Yeah.
1: I think the question always becomes, though, what are the unethical people that are using this technology, right? Like, Lucasfilm can have books and books of policies and procedures about, why they think this is the best ethical way to go about something like a deep mm-hmm. fake character, but if we're putting the development of that technology with Lucasfilm, then it gets into the quote unquote wrong hands. I mean, this just sends you into a moral tailspin, right? Like <laughs> exactly.
0: But then also that moral tailspin, like it can't. It's not within the past ten years, yeah. Right, like it. it yeah. Has, this has been explored for years. And it gets particularly dystopian, gets particularly sci-fi esque and ci- cyberpunky when you start thinking like this, and that's why there's so many sci-fi stories about data and data collection and yeah. what does that mean and things like that. And again, I think that that is, in as like people who are existing in the world in 2022, we think about all those things all the time, at least I do constantly, about how I'm perceived online and how am I making safe choices based on my own data collection and how much control do I have over that and how much do I like sort of passively let go because I can't handle it, right? Um, Because I don't have any handle on it. And I think that's just like something that we're experiencing now in this technological boom. And again, like I just want to reference before that I am not an expert in this at all, but this is just how I perceive it as, <laughs> as
1: myself. As people in the 21st century who grew up, who have memories of the internet coming about and are trying to like, work through all of the far-reaching implications of it in real time while also benefiting from it on multiple levels... I think this is a good segue, actually, as we move into the second kind of section of the essay that really talks about uh, what the author calls top-down and bottom-up creation of a celebrity. But before that, uh, they write about the character of a celebrity and the existence of a celebrity. And I think it's a bit of a long paragraph to read, but I think it's worthwhile because I can never explain it like this and I think it is really good and worthwhile as if you're listening to this, you're probably a big Star Wars fan and you're probably, I think most people who are Star Wars fans are fans of the actors and the people who create these stories for us too. So it's all kind of one thing. So I think that it's worth it to kind of go through this definition of a star, which is weird. Uh, to think about because I don't think I've ever thought as technically or in-depth about this definition in a way that I could articulate like this. But I will say, like I said earlier, I think in this episode, talking about George Lucas as a character in our last essays on Carrie, this talks about this specifically and, and explains it in a a really great way. So this is from the essay. Uh, and like I said, it's a bit of a long paragraph, so bear with me. But here we go. Quote, Richard Dyer's well-known work called Stars, from 1998, uh, positions stars as constructions made of signifiers, images that denote particular notions, ideology, and social and cultural homogeny. In other words, stars, as we know them, are not real people. But the fact that the star image refers to a real person is part of what gives the star their power. Quote, stars are like characters in stories, representations of people, Dyer writes. A statement that reminds us that the star herself can never be fully accounted for in the images, interviews, and public appearances that define star existence. Dyer demands that we analyze Fisher's stardom the way we might analyze a character in a fictional work, as composites that refer to a larger existence obscured by the gaps in what we see. The audience perceives Fisher as an autonomous, interesting, rounded character, based on the limited glimpses offered by various industrial modes, from films to journalistic pieces to published work and so on. When the camera cuts, the star becomes invisible, and audiences extrapolate what happens in the gap based on the information they have. Thus, the popular character becomes a part of our image of the star. Quote, Stars collapse the distinction between the actor's authenticity and the authentication of the character they're playing. This would appear to set up a binary reveal, an approachable solution as to whether the star, either A, is like the character portrayed, or B, is not like the character portrayed. For Dyer, however, the distance of the star's personality from the characters portrayed is simply another sign that constructs the image of the star. Therefore, Fisher's struggle with her stardom and her inability to separate herself entirely from Leia becomes a signifier of her own star character. As if stuck in the mud, the harder Fisher divests from her role, the more tightly she is wound up in her own collection of signs. I remember reading this and I was like, oh God, whoa. <laughs> I was like, this- I
0: know it sort of rocks me. I know. It, it rocks my
1: world. Like, the thing about this essay is that in so many ways, this essay feels very surface level in a lot of ways about a parasocial relationship with a celebrity, but also the most personal in how we exist in a fandom as fans of a thing and i think this is applicable to whatever it is you're a fan of author talks about signifiers for a star and i think another word i would choose to give that is characteristics of a star the word signifiers again feels very like a data entry point which i think is the point the the intention behind using the term signifier but i know for me it was kind of hard to conceptualize or, or fully kind of understand what they were getting at, but about taking these characteristics that we see on the page or in an interview and we apply them ourselves. And so this essay is talking about where those signifiers are coming from. Is it coming from Lucasfilm? Is it coming from Carrie? Or is it harvested from the fans that we then apply to Carrie Fisher ourself.
0: I think my favorite line from that quote that you read is, quote, when the camera cuts, the star becomes invisible and the audience extrapolate Mm -hmm. what happens in the gap based on the information
1: they have. Yeah, me too.
0: I think about this a lot, actually, because I think that even sometimes, like, I don't mean to make this about myself, but I will. (laughs) Because I think that even sometimes, like, when you're listening to this podcast, people who are listening like really don't know what happens like before we press record and after we press record and I'm not saying that to be creepy I'm just saying that that's what we present into the world right like it's not like that is malicious but like I, I think that there's just a lot of perception that happens online based off of what you see and this is a conversation that happens so much now with the rise of social media on an individual level right like when you're scrolling through your instagram feed you only see a highlights reel and how do you think about like what happens in between when you're on instagram when you're not even if you're not talking to that person and the concept of a celebrity and i really like also how this essay talks about how it presents a binary reveal of is this person like the character they portray or not and i think that we are Um, are doing that cognitively whether we know it or not right about a a celebrity and if they are like them maybe it's in their benefit because then we uh, we sort of associate them as one character and I think that's actually what happens with Leia in some way because even Carrie herself I think there's a wonderful quote I do not have it in front of me about how Carrie says that where leia ends carrie begins and there's no end or something like that right do you remember that quote specifically
1: i I cannot quote it but i remember it yeah
0: (laughs) yeah there is something just really similar about how carrie will always be princess leia and then just that okay so then if we take what we know about stars and celebrities into our relationship with Star Wars celebrities and Star Wars characters, specifically Princess Leia, who's so definitive in especially a woman fan's um, experience within Star Wars, is like okay, what are we experiencing then? Because with with Carrie, we have so much media. Like I, I mentioned this a while ago, but we have so much media in in what she thinks about the concept of celebrity and her experience as a star. Because not only was she a huge star, right, and one of the most iconic characters of all time, but she was born into celebrity, born into stardom. So this is something that she has thought about so much and writes so beautifully on as well. So it really does create, um, again, like... a. (laughs) A, A lot to think about, I guess, when it's really laid out, like Caitlin mentioned, right in front of you. And then, of course, it adds another meaning when her character continues on after her death when we think about them, at least I do, as so similar as like almost one person. One is not real and one isn't. And, you know, like one is not real and one is. So I.
1: It's a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's so. Um, the author that the essay quotes a lot is Richard Dyer, who wrote a, I think it's a book called Stars from the 90s, which I have I've not read it. I only only know about it from this essay. but Richard Dyer writes about it this image being created from the studio, from the the top down. And I think that I don't think that author could have imagined the world that we're living in now where, like you said, Charlotte, um, Carrie Fisher has written so much about herself, her life, her, her, Inability to separate herself from Carrie Fisher, how she wishes she was separated from Carrie uh, from sorry from Princess Leia. See, God, that's like a Freudian slip there. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Uh, (laughs) But she's written so much about it herself, and so the signifiers of who we think Carrie Fisher to be are also coming directly from her. But this is also still a persona because we're never with her twenty four seven. Um, and it did make me think a lot about us as podcasters and the way that you, the listener think about us. Like there are people who are listening to this show right now who don't follow us on any social media. The only avenue that you have to know us is through this podcast is through this hour and a half right now in your headphones, (laughs) right? But then there are people who have this other layer of how they, know us to be through social media or through TikTok. And then there are other people who have met us in person, but in different degrees of events, whether it's passing on a convention floor for just a second or actually at a live show or having a conversation with us. And it's like all of these layers. But at the same time, I know in all of those moments, I'm putting on a persona myself. And I think a lot of times there's this feeling that a persona is inherently a bad thing or is fake um, or is not True, and I think I've felt in the past couple of years that I don't agree with that because I'm never going to get on this podcast and sit down to record and not put my best foot forward.
0: <laughs> totally right. That's yeah. never or, or be myself.
1: Yeah, it's, it's both. It
0: just wouldn't be good. It's
1: both. Like <laughs> yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna say my opinion, but I also can't lie and say that I'm never nerve, not nervous about my opinion. In that same vein, I never want to come on sit down to record in a bad mood or phone it in you know what I mean so of course I'm gonna put my best foot forward and be energetic because one this is something that I care about but I also care about our listeners and the fact that you're choosing to spend time with us and to hear what we have to say so yeah if if I'm having a bad day and that's certainly happened on days that we record and it's like all right I got to rally I got to Flip the switch a little bit in my head, you know, to get in a better mindset before we do this. And there have been many times over the years that we have not recorded, pushed off a recording because we didn't feel in the right headspace to do it. And so, yeah.
0: This recording,
1: you mean? Yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, so, like,
0: we've done it so many times, like, so many times. I just want to say.
1: A lot of people will listen down and be like, yeah, absolutely. You should take time for yourself. You got to like be in the right headspace, of course. But all that to say is I put on a persona when I sit down at this microphone. And if you've met me at a celebration, there is a a version of myself that you're meeting, that is not my complete self. Just like I assume that I am not meeting your complete self, because how could we expect that of each other, right? And so how could we expect that of Carrie Fisher, despite all of the hours of of interviews and the thousands of pages of writing that she's given us even with that we can never write like even though there are I guess you could say fewer gaps in her persona because of how much she has given us of herself so generously and vulnerably there are still gaps there and I think that has been yeah you said that was kind of your favorite section uh, quote from that section I read and I think it is for me too because yeah, when the camera goes off, something takes its place for Carrie Fisher or or for myself too, like when the, the recording mic goes off, right? And that makes it sound very dramatic. It's not, I promise. But like, I don't know. It just caused me to think a lot about my relationships with celebrities and parasocial relationships. And even the parasocial relationships that we have with each other online like other podcasters people in the star wars community people that i've talked to every day for years and have never met in person people who i consider my friends but do i know them i do know them i know a very specific side of them but i still only know a part of them
0: but also that's everyone
1: yeah, that it that is everyone too. And I think that's, that's Yeah,
0: that's your point. Is yeah. like there's a Thank we're you. only putting a piece of it out there. <laughs> so yeah. I just I wanna I wanna help you hammer home. <laughs> <laughs> is that we're always only putting a piece out there. And I think it's elevated on a massive level with a celebrity because yeah. that piece is seen by millions of people thousands of people, your degree of reach varies obviously, but that's what makes it different is that there's so many people who are perceiving the same thing and also experiencing that when the camera cuts, what happens?
1: I think there is, especially in kind of the mid aughts of social media, there was this, like I said earlier, like feeling of fakeness from people, accusing people of being fake for not being vulnerable and authentic online. But it was social media was such like the wild, wild west for influencers and, you know, YouTube stars and TikTok stars now. And there's such a different type of celebrity that makes you feel like there are fewer gaps in your understanding of the person. And maybe there are, but like I said before, there are still gaps, many gaps.
0: Totally. Let's shift a little bit to talk about virtual performance and the term harvited, harvested celebrity that the author coins. We've already talked about virtual performance, which I'll read the definition again as defined by the author. Quote, briefly sketched virtual performance refers to the use of software applications and digital effects to create a new simulated performance of an actor or celebrity personality, often recreated without the presence or input from the target targeted performer. But then the author actually puts forth another term called harvested celebrity, which is basically what Caitlin was talking about before, but it's worth defining because the term is – I think the word harvest is something we should dive into – so, quote, the other is harvested celebrity, the kind that Carrie Fisher made a hallmark of her late life and career via social media engagement with fans and followers. I chose the word harvested as a work around to avoid the terms like, quote, participatory or, quote, convergence, terms Henry Jenkins coined to define a cultural activity of sharing and collaboration, using media platforms like Twitter as a means to an end. Following Jenkins' theories, those fans who engaged with and followed Fisher on social media are often made to feel as if they were collaborating with Fisher on a live feed of her life, commenting, tagging, retweeting, conversing. Jenkins doesn't believe that applications like Twitter are intrinsically participatory, but rather exist as platforms that facilitate the natural drive for creative participation and that has has always existed in communities and in fact help form communities. There's much to appreciate in Jenkins' models, but we must be careful not to simply frame Fisher's direct engagement with fans through an unproblematic lens of content producers and content consumers, using digital technology to forge new relationships and avenues for consumer activism. Jenkins too often overlooks or downplays the ways in which we, which consumer participation is turned against the consumer and weaponized by the content creators, disrupting the perceived closeness between two sides. In many cases, participation is in fact an illusion of participation fostered and encouraged by media industries. Is the volume of fan engagement with Fisher over Twitter authentic and open as a reading by Jenkins might support? Or is it simply a new kind of separated construction mediated by the boundary of a software within which it occurs? Okay, so that was a lot of words. All right. I just want to say (laughs) a lot of words to talk about harvested celebrity and what it means to be a harvested celebrity and how do we define participating and diving into what it means to converse with a celebrity on social media like Twitter. And I think with Caitlin and I, we actually use Twitter a lot. And this is something that I think that we think about a lot is what is the means to an end to using Twitter? Is it just fun? When I'm talking to someone on Twitter, what does it mean? And I think that the the author that the author that this author actually quotes last name Jenkins, I sort of think it's like it's sort of passive, right? Like that's what he he's defining it as. When I actually think that it is the opposite, um, that we form all of these opinions based off from someone based off of our experience on social media with them. Therefore, we're harvesting using that word, this. Appearance of that celebrity based off of what they put out online, which feels in a sense what they put out online feels so personal because it feels like a leveling field with fans and creators. Right. When we when we experience celebrities, sometimes they're on a stage stage. And we're in the audience, they're on the screen, and we're in the audience. But on Twitter, we're all in the same place. I've heard people talk about Twitter being a town square. I don't always know if I fully agree with that, but there is a leveling field with social media that happens a lot. Of course, there's a lot of disputes you can make when talking about social media and that leveled field, meaning someone like Carrie Fisher has a blue check mark, right? Because they're a celebrity, and someone like Caitlin and I do not have blue check marks. So we are not actually experiencing Twitter the same way. But at the same time, we do have the app. We all have the same app. There's something there, right, that is uh, a leveling field that's different from watching someone on the screen and experiencing it as an audience member. However, we are an audience to her own tweets, right? And we were an audience, right? And uh, what we think about what she puts out on there, to use the term, we harvest them in order to create an image of that celebrity. And I think that so much of even Carrie's like end of her life in that like five year period or longer period that she was on Twitter tweeting actively so many fans. I think that we even like personally had great experiences of interacting with Carrie online when she was alive, um, especially on Twitter. So just, it's an interesting thing to think about because I think even the term harvested celebrity, which is in the title, right? Like the, the title of this essay is Harvesting the Celebrity Interface. Using the term harvest, there's a certain sense to me, at least my experience of that word, there's a certain violence to the word harvest. I don't know about you, Caitlin.
1: Yeah, honestly, because we've been talking so much about. Kind of the sci-fi nature of a lot of the descriptions and stuff used in this. I think of like harvesting bodies and like body parts. And there's so many sci-fi films about that. And I think it's very apt when we're talking about full body scans of celebrities and things like that to be used in the future. The word harvest, yeah, I completely agree with with, with you about the feeling of it of violent, of dark, of kind of mindless, or also kind of a, a baser intention around harvesting signifiers of a celebrity. And I think that the, the kind of last chunk of this essay, I think, does a pretty good job of contrasting a word like harvesting signifiers for a celebrity with the very real organic kind of movement of how people memorialized Carrie Fisher and talked about her after her death, because it is, these are not clear cut lines of someone saying, I am taking, it's not a tweet of, I took this piece of Carrie Fisher's image and now I'm applying it to such and such. It's, a wave. It's a movement. Um, It's much more organic and kind of free-flowing, I think, than that, which makes it more difficult to pin down if it's right or wrong, if it lives somewhere in the middle, if it really matters ultimately, if it can ever really matter ultimately. And I think that they had this really good example of Carrie Fisher's middle finger, which I really loved (laughs) this whole example. So the example talks about Carrie Fisher's middle finger and how uh, this became a symbol for her defiance, her humor, her openness uh, to substance abuse and mental health issues. And all of it kind of gets distilled down into this image of her throwing the middle finger. And the in fact, the cover art for this, Book uh, is Carrie Fisher giving the middle finger, and how this has kind of come to to mean a lot of things about Carrie Fisher and who she was. So I wanted to read a little bit about this example and what it means uh, when we think about harvesting celebrity signifiers, because harvesting comes from fans. It doesn't come from Lucasfilm or even Carrie Fisher herself or any other celebrity. This is the bottom up part of the essay. So there are three ways. The signifiers of a star are created. Top down is from the studio. And then also, I guess, kind of neutral, but also top down is from the celebrity themselves. So highly constructed, filtered, if we were to throw a social media term on top of it, um, perception and characterization of a celebrity. Bottom up is what we take from Things like social media and from interviews that feel more personal, that feel more directly from the celebrity. And we use those things to create an understanding as a fan community of who that person was or the, the real version, a realer version of that person than what comes to us from a movie studio, for example. So the middle finger, that comes from fans. That's obviously not an image that Lucasfilm would put out of Carrie Fisher and or Princess Leia, right? So this section starts, quote, Fisher's finger is a sign in the Richard Dyer sense, one that represents in miniature what Fisher represents to her fans overall. Defiance in the face of struggle against mental illness, celebrity commodification, addiction, and more. The bulk of Fisher's embrace of software celebrity advanced that theme from her quirky use of emoji lettering that gave many of her tweets the appearance of ransom notes to her advice columns that openly targeted young readers experiencing emotional traumas, a concern of Fisher's that helped to earn her the nickname Space Mom among fans. Fisher only published three columns before her passing, but the final was addressed to a young reader diagnosed like Fisher with bipolar disorder. Carrie wrote, we have been been given a challenging illness, and there's no other option than to meet those challenges. Think of it as an opportunity to be heroic, not I survived living in Mosul during an attack heroic, but an emotional survival. Fisher's middle finger demonstrates how sign creation occurs in a participatory culture through fan harvesting. In the Richard Dyer model, signification is top-down originating from the industry and adopted by consumers, but Fisher's brand of software celebrity was produced in a channel and a stream of vast numbers of potential signifiers that were narrowed and selected by Fisher's fans. Fisher didn't act in the top-down role of the studio, curating images and submitting them to the public with calculation to aid in star signification. The finger was not Fisher's image, nor did it originate from Lucasfilm or any other studio. Instead, the digital archiving affordance of social media allowed for images of her middle finger to accumulate and sit passively among her many other potential signifiers. It was Fisher's fans who harvested from the archive, choosing the image of Fisher's finger to signify Fisher herself because it contained those traits with which they chose to identify her. Toughness, hardheadedness, resoluteness in the face of struggle. In other words, Fisher's finger is a signifier created from the bottom up fan-driven, bottom-up signification is made simple and facilitated by the digital affordance of software. Archiving, searching, malleability, and mediation all make it possible to simply and easily harvest images of Fisher, giving the finger, repackage them, and share them among fans, creating a new signification that becomes available and acceptable for canonization in pieces like the cover art done by Lindsay van Ecklenberg's Blessed Rebel Queen, software makes it possible for fans to harvest and select the traits that they choose to associate with the star, resulting in a new software model of star signification. I know that was a lot. I hope you got through it with me. (laughs) But I think that was important to read because I kind of had a hard time articulating harvesting. I think I was honestly turned off by the term at first because As a fan, I feel like I truly care for someone like Carrie Fisher. um, And I feel like I always want to understand her true self. But I also exist in a digital landscape. And so many of these traits are harvested from an archive of what gets the most retweets (laughs) and things like that. And I don't know, it really made me sit back and think about... Everything that we do online when it comes to celebrities and the traits that we associate with them that come from their own creation, right? Like Carrie Fisher threw the middle finger herself all the time. It's not like that didn't happen. So this isn't a a wrong thing to associate with her right? But when we're looking at this span of who she was as portrayed through something like her Twitter feed, at the time in 2016, 2017, that is what was harvested because that is what the fandom needed to get through for motivation, for comfort, whatever it was. That was what was chosen to be harvested from Carrie Fisher's image and used so predominantly to represent her.
0: I think the author is, I'm not going to speak for the author, but I think the author author is a little afraid of using the word meme too yeah. because I think what we're actually referring to when we heard, when we talked about quote fan harvesting is a memification of a celebrity, a character or something in which they become associated with that meme. Specifically with the middle finger image um that is pretty frequent when it comes to Carrie Fisher. I mean, she posed for photos with fans all the time like this. Like, this is not a new thing. And I don't know. I think, Caitlin, you mentioned that Lucasfilm probably didn't, wouldn't put out an image like that. But you actually don't know. Like, <laughs> maybe they could have, you know. But I don't really see, like, the Star Wars account tweeting something like that, I guess. But it's something that comes sort of directly from fans in their digital archive of uploading those. And that, to me, sounds like a meme. It sounds like a GIF. It sounds like something that is traded among people online as a way to communicate. And when when people use those me, I think that we can all think about like a popular meme or something that comes from a movie and now we associate that meme With That person that is depicted in that meme with that person, even though that is just something that we quote unquote harvested as fans or not, not fans, um, as people online in order to understand like a slice of their own persona. So the essay talks about fan harvesting and what I'm also going to call the memification of a celebrity. And then they also talk about using the term celebrity interface. So the title of the essay, of course, is Harvesting the Celebrity Interface. But what is an interface, right? And I think that the author talks about, I'm going to start quoting, we should think of both types of software celebrity discussed here as software interfaces and convincing ones at that. Many viewers didn't realize they were looking at virtual stars at all when they viewed Rogue One. Just as many people who engage with stars on social media may not intuitively understand the distance that actually separates them from the object of their attention. The aim of the interface is to elide its contributions. Quote, thinking of software celebrity as an interface grants us access to finally apprehending the intense emotions of Fisher's fans generated by the idea of a virtual Princess Leia. Alexander Galway frames his discussion of software interfaces by acknowledging the desire of the viewer to reduce the interface and arrive much closer to the object, in this case, the performer, beyond, noting that, quote, a desire to be brought near is such a desire is most certainly at the very base of human life. So I think that when you talk about the interface. That interface could be Twitter. It could be the movies. It could be a television show. It could be any sort of media in which we consume from a screen, whether that's a big screen, that's a small screen, that's our phone, um, our computer, on Twitter. And we're always, I think, as fans looking to reduce that gap in between um, where we sit right now and that celebrity that we like. Um, And I think that it gets kind of creepy, right? But that's how we experience and use that as, like, a mode of understanding um, our own relationship to the celebrity.
1: Yeah, and as audiences, we like the interface of something like Twitter because the gap is smaller. And it's – they're all, like, everything from the movie studio to interviews that is done – that are done – Um, commercials uh, and everything on social media, these are all different interfaces. It's just the degree to which the audience feels they're seeing something authentic. And like today's audiences, we know that on a film or in certain types of interview settings, it's very scripted is for lack of a better word, like filtered, I guess. But then, you know, a celebrity responding, kind of randomly on Twitter that feels much less scripted it feels more real unfiltered um, it feels genuine and authentic I mean you just had Ryan Johnson reply to a tweet of yours and it was like the best day ever <laughs> and I was like oh it was he, it really he was just <laughs> me directly it's like me <laughs> but is it is it like is it an illusion it's an it's an a good illusion for you what does it actually mean to Ryan Johnson it's just like something passing on his newsfeed, you know what I mean?
0: Totally, yep. I think what we're getting at is really summarized at the end of this essay because there's a gap, right, between how we have perceived Carrie Fisher versus how we perceive Princess Leia and what happens when the camera stops, right, that quote that we read that we both responded to. Um, We are filling in a lot of gaps with our perception as fans of Carrie Fisher and we have been for years. And those gaps, what we have filled in, might not actually jive with what we see presented from the studio from us. Um, And of course, like I, you might recoil at that, but I just want to read the quote and you can see what you think. Quote, Lucasfilm's virtual Leia is an Ideological construction of control centered and near invisible, but software celebrity has allowed an ethical, decentered version of Carrie Fisher to eclipse the original. Fisher's software stardom makes her suddenly incompatible with her original studio image. We can theorize then that this disruption of her star image drove, in part, the fan backlash against her virtual display replacement. Even after Fisher herself reportedly approved likeness, with Fisher's defiance decentered, it has thus been repurposed and redistributed among. Fan channels. This quote thing called Carrie Fisher can no longer be scanned and ingested, even if the eventual fate of Princess Leia in future Star Wars films, because it has been dispersed and incorporated among those who embrace her image of defiance. The studio version of, of Fisher can only be a puppet, speaking for a politics of control, while Blessed Rebel Queen, this this anthology, speaks for fans who constructed her, who seek to hashtag carry on, who are raising their middle fingers in solidarity. I think what this essay does at the very end is it separates, it goes back to that very original point in that original thing that we started this essay, this conversation off with, with Lucasfilm feeling the need to respond to that fan backlash about what will happen to Carrie Fisher's performance for episode nine. And it says, and it sort of makes the point that that, performance, why that statement needed to be made is because Carrie Fisher, as a persona, as a celebrity, as a star, and all effects of that word that we've discussed today has eclipsed who Carrie, who Princess Leia is in every fan's heart basically and who she is and how how we perceive her quote unquote carries on. And that's why it felt uncomfortable. That's why that thing needed to be said. That's why that statement needed to be issued because we're still wrestling with these two things, Princess Leia, Carrie Fisher.
1: Yeah, I don't think I've ever kind of truly thought about or put it into those words of Carrie Fisher eclipsing Princess Leia because I think I think of them is so merged. So I think to kind of truly put Carrie Fisher as eclipsing Princess Leia is a really interesting conclusion and one I still need to think about because I guess it is true in a lot of ways, but is it fully true? I don't know. And I remember thinking about this after she passed away and everything kind of leading up to the rise of Skywalker, what they were going to do with her character, et cetera, and thinking about... 50 years from now, people watching these films, and do they care that all of this happened the way it did? Right? Is will Carrie Fisher still eclipse Princess Leia 50 years from now, 10 years from now, or will it still be, or will it have flipped then? Because the people that are that have living memory of her, I guess I should say, are no longer around are no longer part of the fandom, have passed away themselves, you know what I mean? Uh, because is that all of our reaction to Peter Cushing in Rogue One, we're like, wow, oh my God, looks so great. But don't do that with Carrie Fisher. Not so soon. It's too soon, right? So then in 50 years, will it not be too soon anymore? I don't know. It's like, it's kind of, it has sent me into a spiral about how I think about all of this and my perception of a celebrity in general. Like I said, when we first started this essay, I definitely thought it was going to be, let's really dive into the ethics of something like a virtual performance, like we saw in Rogue One and Book of Boba Fett. And I'm kind of glad it didn't because I don't know if I could have coherently talked about it at all. Cause I can barely coherently talk about this topic, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's it's just given me a lot of reflection about those gaps in understanding a persona of a celebrity and also the role that we all play in the fandom of harvesting images, of harvesting personality traits, signifiers of a celebrity. And the author makes the argument that the harvesting is in some ways more ethical than the top-down image that is created by the studio, for example. And is it perhaps more ethical? I think I might say it's more organic. Uh, But is it still a true representation of who Carrie Fisher was? Does it ultimately matter? I think it does. But I'm not sure if it's still a true image of her. But can anything be a true image of her? Can anything be a true image of me? No. So then does it ultimately matter?
0: Right. And I think that's the, that's the question. I mean, I think that personally it does matter because it matters to me, but I don't really know the levels in which it matters to me until I'm presented with the question and I don't have the specific question right now. Like because I don't have a specific example. Um, I think with when we talk about the rise of Skywalker and what was done there, again, I just don't know because I don't have enough facts. I don't have enough information because I don't really understand how it works. Um, and I think that the way that I have compartmentalized it has been like, okay, Billy Billy Lord thought that that was fine, so I should also think that's fine because she probably knows her mother more than any of us as fans, and probably understands. I don't know. Probably understands to a level of what um, that would mean to her and what she would want. Even though Billy is also just. Of a, a, a person to making a decision, so in really um,
1: difficult circumstances,
0: super difficult circumstances. So, again, I have to acknowledge those dis- difficult circumstances too. And I wonder, like, if I were in Billy's shoes, what would I have done? Right? Yeah. It's do you let down a bunch of fans who want to continue to see Carrie Fisher in the last Star Wars film, or do you make the choice to um, say no, they can't do anything with that footage? You must recast her. And, like, what does that do for her legacy in which Billy is supposed to be protecting? Right. Mm-hmm. You're right. Like, in this essay, I just hadn't really thought that much about, um, or just so um, exactly viscerally. about viscerally. Yeah. Coming back to like how we experience a celebrity. And I, I do think that that's something that we have talked about on the show a lot is, again, not knowing what we want to know, right? Uh, and understanding that we will never know the full picture. And that's, again, part of like being a fan is the speculation. Again, it's like what happens when the camera stops and that camera can mean a couple different things, right? Um, it could mean the social media, it could mean movies, it could mean anything. That's the, the interface, right? In the end, like everything is... Constructed, everything is a constructed image. So when the questions of like ethics come up, it's one that needs to be de- debated fiercely and like per example, I guess I think that as a as a fan of a studio like Lucasfilm, who is at the forefront of technology and have has used it in ways that are ways that help them tell the story that they hope to tell. Like at the end of the day, I think that there are like endless quotes about George Lucas talking about sort of anthropologically about how technology helps him tell the story that he wants to tell right and I sort of I subscribe to that concept of finding the best technology to tell your story that you want to tell but then again with I with the question that becomes is this the best technology is this the best use of it is this um, personally okay Uh, I have to hope that those are questions that are being debated and talked about before rushing into it but as the technology gets more um universal and more widely used. I think we know that uh, things like digital performances are going to be misused because I think that celebrity in itself is something that is constantly misused. And it's the subject of movies and so much conversation about, you know, about any celebrity off the top of your head that you can think about. Their relationship to fame is something that we're interested in. And uh, I think that we as consumers must understand that, that relationship is complicated and layered and the more we can talk about it and the more that we can think about it and have these terms in order to use them as tools to discuss it, I think it's helpful.
1: Yeah. But then we also, it's also important bringing into the conversation or just continually being cognizant of, or I guess discussing that these are still businesses, like Lucasfilm is still a business within an even bigger business like Disney. Yes. That is capitalistic and wants to make money. And are they then profiting off of our harvested emotional perception of Carrie Fisher and what Mm. we, the fan rejection of a virtual performance of her that they put out a statement before the last Jedi has even been released about no definitively, this is what we are and what we are not doing um, to cater to that fan reaction or is it what they actually felt was the right call? But then like what, when you're talking about George Lucas and like his feelings about technology and all the ways that he's advanced it, we've talked literally for hours about this and how that's so much who he is, um, his goals and everything like that. But that's also a signifier that has been harvested by us that he has talked about to the same extent that Carrie Fisher has talked about things like her mental health and and things like that. And So then Lucasfilm taking that kind of foundation laid by George Lucas, harvesting it themselves as the legacy of their studio for the ways in which they explore new technology for filmmaking in the future. And I don't I don't think that's like ethically wrong of them. Like that is still all true of who George Lucas was and is and the things that he pioneered as a filmmaker like none of that is false and none of that is wrong for lucasfilm to say this is our foundation and we're we always strive to be at the forefront of forefront of new filmmaking technology um it's just interesting to think about of how all of it like you said all of it is a construction at the end of the day and what pieces are we taking to push us forward to the next step of what we want to accomplish and what are our motivations and end goals for it. Is it a good story? Is it a good box office profit? Is it both? It's both. Um, It's both. It's both. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's one of those things that you just have to remember and it sometimes is a very depressing fact, but again, one that we've talked about on this podcast, specifically in our last two episodes of Essays on Carrie, is that you can't separate Star Wars from The machine of money making yes and I think you can't we can talk about these things in a nebulous sense about the concept of celebrity but we cannot separate it fully from capitalism from making money from box office results from followers all these things that translate into dollars like we when we talk about like Action figures and making money off of those action figures, like all of that, is rooted in money. So it's it's just one of those things that it's like again, we can talk about things from like separately, but the concept of a fan usually is created from, or a, the concept of a celebrity is usually created from a multi million dollar movie that must make it killing at a box office. And I, I just think it's impossible to talk about these things without understanding that specific aspect um, of being a fan. I just think that the, it's it's just tough to talk about those things and separate them sort of theologically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I think just having the conversation about them is important to
0: Agreed. always Agreed. kind of
1: have at the forefront of your mind as people who spend so much time in this world. And I think, Think about all of our conversations of like what future stories do we want to see from from Star Wars, from Lucasfilm and, and wanting these kind of off the wall, like really niche kind of stories in the Star Wars world almost. But thinking about that, you know, quote unquote box office profit, but then an interface like Disney Plus, for example, gives you more opportunity to not be as concerned with Weekend openings, you know? So it's a different type of interface, but still coming from a studio, and of course, still wanting to make money from subscribers. But is it the same kind of expectation or the same kind of importance? Isn't the right word, but I don't know. It's not the same thing as a movie. Right. I feel like my brain hurts a little bit after
0: this conversation. Yeah, mine does too. I think that with a conversation like this, it's always tough. Like every time we have these essays on Carrie conversations, they sort of like rock my world. (laughs) Like last time, part two, I was like, what's the point of podcasting? (laughs) What's the point of being a fan? And I think I'm arriving at a, not the what's the point of podcasting, but sort of like What's the point of how I perceive celebrity and consume media? <laughs> the ethics of being a fan. Yeah, the ethics of it all. And it's definitely some it's not like a new concept that I thought of, right? It's just uh, when it's put out, like I said before, when you have these terms to work with, like virtual performance, harvested celebrity, software celebrity, uh, software interface, things like that with in terms of when you're talking about digital performances, you have these tools in order to have these conversations and have these yeah. thoughts and debates And I'm always eternally grateful for that.
1: Yeah, I am too. I am too. For as much as it does make my head spin, (laughs) it is important to think about. Well, I think that is going to round out this episode all about harvesting the celebrity interface. So Essays on Carrie Part 3. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it, Uh, made you think a little bit. Enjoy feels like a weird thing to say when I'm talking about all of us as a fan community harvesting celebrity interfaces. (laughs) But I hope you guys enjoyed uh, this next installment on Essays on Carrie. Uh, We have been enjoying going through it, and we'll continue to do so throughout the rest of the book, maybe through the end of the year, probably into 2023, (laughs) But if you want to find us on our own interface, we are most often on Twitter. You can find us at Sky Talkers Pod or our personal handles. Charlotte's is at clarity and mine is at Caitlin Flusher. We also have uh, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, our website, Skytalkers.com, all of those places, all of those interfaces, you can find us. Uh, and if you have left us a review on iTunes or Spotify recently, thank you so, so much. We really do appreciate you taking the time to go and do that and if you're interested in other ways to support our show and ways to get involved in our discord community you can head on over to our patreon and check out our different reward tiers there
0: and i want to say a huge thank you to these patrons stephanie tom martin talking bay 94 Talia, Daniela, Heidi, Kitty, Emily, Adam, John, Dylan, Alex, Fifi, King, Kimberly, Suki, Paul, Shelby, Derek, Tegan, and Imbecilious. Thank you so much for supporting us.
1: Yes. Thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you.
0: May the force be with you.